you're listening to How to Build a Better World, the Fifth Estates podcast where we call on the experts and leaders to explore the big ecological, social and financial problems of our time. On the podcast this week, Tina Perinotto, our managing editor, was joined by Tim Hollow, the executive director of the Green Institute, in a deeply thoughtful conversation full of insights about the nature of the current political climate. Tim's background is fascinating. He was a political advisor to Christine Milne during the highly volatile Gillard-Rudd years, which arguably had the biggest impact on the climate agenda in Australia so far. He's also had a background in environmental activism. With many insights gained from his training in law, and the intriguing field of political theatre, where he learned about some of our most deeply ingrained human traits. Among those is that when it comes to politics, we humans activate the most primitive parts of our brains, the part that works on our fight or flight responses. Now that goes a long way to explain some of the choices we make at the polling booths. Tim has also spent a lot of time thinking about democracy and why it's crumbling. He says deliberately obscuring reality in pursuit of self-interest can be truly frightening, and it's happening a bit, but there are remedies. He's a great believer in the power of trust and close communication with the people closest to us, our community. He also has deep respect for the idea of political ecology, which challenges the political theory dominant over the last hundred years that sees humans as separate from the natural world and each other. Although Darwinism has led us to believe that competition is the key to a species' success, cooperation has been proven to be just as powerful. Um, Tim Hollow, you've got a, 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 an amazing background and lots of things that you've done in the background in your past and now. I'd just like to welcome you to our podcast for the Fifth Estate called How to Build a Better World. So thank you thank for joining. Thanks for having me, Tina. Yeah. So Tim is joining us from his um, home in Canberra, where he's been very busy on a number of things. Um, But uh, Tim, I met you, um, uh, we'll just start with a bit of background. I met you years ago when you were a media advisor to Christine Milne. Um, I'm just wondering Mm -hmm. if you could tell us a little bit about um, that job and some highlights and um, how you came to it. Uh, Sure. I mean, look, it was an extraordinary job. Um, I absolutely loved it while also, um, you know, finding that position of being a staffer for an MP (laughs) incredibly demanding. How I came to it was I, um, I mean, I guess I've, I've, always been an environmentalist since since growing up and I've always cared deeply about environmental issues and social justice issues and I then went and studied um, arts law um, and kind of through that process got interested in, in, in environmental law specifically um, and went and started wo- uh, volunteering first and then working in various positions in the environment movement very swiftly, I guess, getting into climate campaigning, um, climate policy and then into campaigning with the Nature Conservation Council of New South Wales and then Greenpeace and and sort of because as well as being interest you know you know legally trained and interested in that space i've also always been a performing artist um a musician and um and i did a um honors in in theater in fact in political theater um at the same time as my arts uh, yeah as my law degree and so at greenpeace the director of communications kind of tapped me on the shoulder and said hey would you be interested in joining our comms team um, and so 
I learnt on the job how to kind of do comms and media liaison from some of the best in the business around Greenpeace. They would be too. I think they're very successful. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Um, And, yeah, so kind of having having moved sort of sideways multiple times kind of through law and policy and campaigning, moved into comms, um, did that at Greenpeace for a number of years, and then Christine Milne, when she was elected to the Senate, um, and was looking for a comms person um, to focus on climate change, which was always her big focus, um, brought me into the team then, um, which, yeah, which was amazing. So, Christine, as um, you, know, you know and many of your, your audience knows, um, is, is, remains one of the most informed and passionate people in the climate space in Australian politics kind of ever. Um, and it was an extraordinary privilege to to work um, for and, and with her for six years, um, right through an amazing period of time from from I joined the team when when John Howard still had control of both houses and the Greens were kind of a ginger group in the Senate through to when Christine was leader and I was her director of communications and through that whole period, you know, of the negotiation of the climate package and, and it beginning to fall apart. Yes, yes. So that was, that was kind of the, a, a, a peak period for the Greens, do you think, where they had most um, impact or, what do, what, or what, do, what do you see as that period in terms of the history of the Greens? Look, I think that period when we had balance of power in both houses with the Gillard government was up to now the most uh, obviously the the um, the period of time at a federal level when we've had the most influence without doubt and so managed to do some wonderful things and um, and you know some of which remain in place like the CEFC and Arena both of which were brought to the table by Christine and her team. Um, and remain the only parts of that climate package still in place um, and doing wonderful good. Um, I, you know, I hesitate to say peak because I think things can still... I knew, can you, still I knew you'd hesitate to agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the peak so far. <laughs> That's right. Um, how I'd put it, at a federal level. But then, of course, you know, I'm, I'm joining you from Canberra where we've been in government with with Labor and cooperatively for um, eight years now, including the last four with Shane Rattenbury, the Greens um, MLA, as Minister for Climate Change. So, so for our know, global, li- uh, global listeners, that's the, um, the territory of Canberra, of the ACT, the Australian Capital Territory, not the, not right. the entire government. <laughs> no, the, yeah, the, the Australian Capital Territory is, is, is this lovely little city-state um, unique in Australia in, in its you know, in its jurisdiction and in its form of government. It's much more like kind of a European um, city municipal level government, in fact, where you've got a government which is responsible for municipal and kind of state services. Um, And we have um, proportional representation in in our parliament here where the Greens have managed to have good, strong representation. And, yeah, as I say, the Minister for Climate Change, Shane Rattenbury, who's been driving... um, some fantastic reform. We are the first city in Australia and I think only the eighth in the world to be entirely powered by renewable energy now. That's fantastic. I think um, Adelaide is uh, champing at the bit behind you yes, there too. Yeah. yeah, I think it went to 100% renewable on July 1st, as did um, City oh, of right. Sydney, which is pretty exciting. Um, so it's a whole lot of, I think there's, that's interesting actually that it's the um, the state 
um, well, some state governments and the city governments that are doing, mm -hmm. that are being the most radical. Why do you think that is, by the way? So that really ties to a lot of my thinking around a democracy. Democ yes, democracy we're going to get to that. <laughs> I've no doubt. Yeah. Um, I believe it's got a lot to do with the fact that the, the closer governments are to the citizens, the more responsive they are to the demands of the citizens. Um, and the further away you get, the more easy it is for, for governments to be divorced from what the people actually want and the easier it is for them to be influenced um, by people with interests that conflict with those of the citizens. Yeah, so that's really interesting. We'll talk more about that. But also I want to go back a little bit more, but you said you, you part of your training was in political theatre. I have never even heard of that as a thing. So maybe you could explain that and also about what you learnt as a communicator because you're a very good communicator. I was dealing with you back then. And, you know, so what did you learn about the messaging through your training and your experience at ACF and and the Greens about how you get a message that's actually quite radical and complicated out to the general population. And I, I agree with you. I think majority of people are getting it now. But what are the the, yep. the communications lessons that you've um, and tools that you've acquired? So yeah, I did a degree in in well a major and then honours in in theatre um, and with a focus in kind of theatre direction and that was kind of one of the things that I was that I was looking to do with my life until environmental law sort of grabbed me by the, <laughs> the scruff of the neck and dragged me in that direction. Um, what I mean by political theatre is that there's always been through through the history, I mean through the history of the arts in general, the arts have always been grappling with the state of the world as it is reflecting that but also challenging that um and one of the most famous um kind of political theater practitioners Bertolt Brecht um wrote that the arts aren't just a mirror to reflect reality but a hammer with which to shape it whoa um and so yeah when I when I was doing that I did I did a couple of different things I did I did some Brecht in fact that I was directing but also some work on on Shakespeare and different interpretations of Shakespeare and how you can how you can put political analysis of all sorts of different kinds onto Shakespeare's language. Um, I focused on King Lear and the various different interpretations that you could put on it. And I guess what I learnt through that process very very much is that communicating with people is primarily about storytelling. Wow. Um, and storytelling is is by far the most powerful way to change people's minds because it's a way that takes you out of the world you're currently in and gives you a window into a different world. So I think the thing that I learned really strongly through that process is that uh, uh, is that political communication is primarily about storytelling. And communication generally, really, the best way of, of communicating is through storytelling. That's why we gossip. That's why we sit and we chat about things and we tell stories about our lives. Um, and so often people consider political communication to be about distributing facts, basically, and saying this is, this is why my set of facts are correct and your set of facts are wrong. And there's a hell of a lot of... Um, neurological and psychological research over many years now that actually demonstrates that that's very counterproductive, actually, that in fact, if somebody has a particular opinion and you try to use facts to change their mind about that 
opinion, usually it backfires. Usually it makes them hold that opinion more strongly than they otherwise would have. And storytelling is a completely different way of doing things. Storytelling is about saying, here is a different way of understanding the world. You know, well, let's take you out of, out of your life as it is now and present a different, somebody else's life a different way of thinking about the world. And it really shifts frames dramatically. It shifts perspectives. And so storytelling is, is by far the most powerful way to, to change opinions. That's really interesting because we can see that with the climate change debate and the fact that, um, that facts and, and data, mm. you know, why is it that people get their backs up about facts being presented <laughs> to them? Um, so... Some of the most fascinating research I've seen in this space is um, Drew Weston, who's a, um, an American neuroscientist, um, actually has, has done brainwave mapping of where, where political decisions are made in the brain. Wow. He's, he's, he's published a book called The Political Brain about a decade or so ago. Um, and what he's found actually is that where a lot of decisions in our day-to-day lives, you know, what to have for breakfast, where to go next, you know, we actually do kind of go through rational processes to make our minds up about what we want to do. Um, but they're always influenced by emotions as well and by kind of culture, what we expect the options might be. Political decisions are primarily made in the amygdala, which is the least evolved part of our brain. It's the part of our brain which which controls the fight and flight reflex, basically. Oh. It's basically dependent on who we think our friends are and who we think our enemies are, what we should be attracted to and what we should be afraid of. Um, so our political decisions are really not rational, actually. The vast bulk of our political decisions are completely irrational and our brain then goes through this process of post-facto rationalising to to convince ourselves that we're making a rational decision when the vast majority of the time we're not. That's fascinating and it kind of explains (laughs) Trump, doesn't it? Because what what I'm reading in recent times is that, uh, you know, the way to explain Trump, it's got nothing to do with what he's doing, what he's saying, the lies, anything. It's about the entire kind of, I suppose, the American population splitting into this kind of loyalty thing, that they're loyal to their tribe and doesn't matter what their leader says or does, it's about being loyal to your tribe and that's all that matters. That frightens me to death but... Yeah, and, and that is the way our our politics has been constructed more and more over recent years. And, again, we, we can come back to the talk about how different models of democracy can change that. But, yeah, we've got this incredibly adversarial political structure mm. um, that's evolved over the last couple of hundred years in particular um, and really, you know, dug itself incredibly deep into a hole over the last couple of decades and in that kind of adversarial political system, our political decisions are, are driven by the gut. They're driven by, by who we like and are loyal to, who we think are friends, who we think are our enemies, and they're not rational. So when you, when you find climate change embedded in that political structure, that's where facts just don't 
actually change any minds at all. They just bounce off and they just make people angry. That you're saying that you're saying that everything that I believe is wrong by telling me that climate change is real and that we should change what we're doing on the basis of it. Therefore, I won't listen to your facts. They'll bounce off. And it goes to it goes to the kind of the, the framing theory. Um, that um, you know, that don't think of an elephant idea as well. That um, that was very big in, in political communication circles. You know, 15, 20 years ago, George Lakoff um, wrote a lot in that space. That if you if you work in somebody else's frame and you give them a set of ideas that challenge that frame, the frame stays and the ideas bounce off. Right. So, um, yep. So yeah, you know, if you're if you're saying to somebody. You know, his, his big examples being being an American Democrat at the time were if you're talking about tax relief, that's a very Republican frame. It's a very right-wing frame that taxes are a burden and we should be relieving people of it. Um, and if you talk about tax in that frame, then anything that you say about the need to invest in in you know, in society or in, in the environment just bounces off. It doesn't work to convince people of anything. That's incredible. And also the leaders of various political parties, it doesn't matter what they do, we will forgive them um, yeah. and ignore them. And, you know, isn't that seems to be the case. Um, now, yeah. Putin seems to be, um, Russian uh, president seems to be a master of that. I heard a few years ago that he hired a um, a, a, a a master of um, theatre, I think, to confuse the people. And this guy, I've forgotten his name, but he actually wrote books and explained what he did. So he would fund people on the side of Putin, also people against Putin. So no one knew what was fact or fiction. So it's, it's, you know, confused the population. You don't know what to believe. And if you've got a situation like that where media is constantly hammered by the Americans and now the Australians and we've got the federal police actually, you know, demonising journalists and... um, um, and and you know trying to sue them and take them to the courts yeah. etc. So if you can't trust even what's happening out there in the world, um, you know how do we get out of that one? That's the thing that really concerns me a lot. That we've got no way of knowing what is true and what isn't true. Yeah, I I agree. That is, I think, the scariest thing that we face at the moment. Um, the the very deliberate confusion of of reality and and construction of of a contestation of reality. Yeah. Um, yeah. P Putin's a master of it, but the U.S. Republicans have been doing it for years, mm. and the right wing around around you know, including in Australia and and the UK have have also been doing it for years. We see this very kind of what's often called a post-truth attitude to political communications where it's not even that it's lying, it's just a complete disregard for, for, for reality. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, and prosecuting um, and your own agenda, et cetera, regard and you'll use any tool at all. Regardless now of, yeah, regardless of observable reality, um, and that's the thing, um, absolutely regardless of observable reality, you know, you can come out and say that, you know, that the US is is doing brilliantly um, in the face of the coronavirus when it's, yeah. you know, it's observable reality that they're dying in their droves. Yeah. Um, so, 
yeah, that's I, that I think is one of the, the most dangerous things we face and it's very, very much why I think we need to shift the way we do our democracy. Yes, which brings um, us to, to some of the work that you're doing, which is, you know, um, perhaps going back to what you said initially, the local government and and that, that sort of propensity to want to trust people um, or to, um, you know, to who you're dealing with. So... And, yeah, and it's loyalty. about... Getting, yeah. It's about getting people involved in decision-making processes as much as possible. I've, I've got a very big focus on participatory democracy. Um, and what you find with these kinds of processes where you bring people together, that's things like citizens' juries and citizens' assemblies, but all sorts of ways of doing it. It doesn't need to be formal processes like that. But, you know, it, it comes back to that question of storytelling as politics as opposed to an adversarial battle. When you make politics about an adversarial battle between two forces, um, it makes it about power, it makes it about domination, and you want to win and you want to defeat the other one utterly. Whereas a, a participatory democratic process is one where you bring people together around a table and you sit down and you say, okay, well, this is where I'm coming from. This is where I think we need to go to. Where are you coming from? And we'll listen to each other and we'll discuss. And we might come up with a creative solution that neither of us necessarily had actually thought of in advance. Mm. Um, and it takes you right out of the whole frame of politics being a battle of, of will and of power and, and of frames of reality and into a constructive process. Yeah, you've actually written some really interesting pieces on that and come up with a theory of, um, you know, of um, political ecology, I think you call it, uh, oh, you know, sorry, what, mm. what uh, you know, where you're saying the left um, gets it wrong, the right gets it wrong, uh, you know, climate campaigners. Can you explain what that is and what your, what your thesis is that you've written for us before? Political ecology, is it? Sure. Um, so a lot of people have written on on various ideas of, of political ecology, and I'm kind of trying to draw them together in a in a in a new way. Um, it's it basically the underlying um, concept is that most of our political theory and practice over the last couple of hundred years has come out of. Um, a culture where we see ourselves as separate, separate from each other, separate from the natural world, disconnected from the natural world, this kind of this division of, of the world, you know, bifurcating along all sorts of different grounds. We separate man from woman um, and man is the dominating force. We separate white from non-white and white becomes the dominating force. We separate man, usually white man, from nature and man becomes the dominating force. Um, and we see that um, coming through in our political um, thinking and our political systems, obviously very, very much in this point that I was making about the adversarial nature of our politics, where politics has to be just this division and a, and a fight between those two. Um, and and the, the right-wing political... Um, philosophy largely the the you know based as I would define right wing um, primary you know the, the primacy of the individual um, is very very much embedded in that kind of thinking that the individual is the key um, focus of politics mm. and that should be you know politics should be based on the freedom of the individual and the rights of the individual 
clearly is is part of that way of thinking. Left-wing politics kind of has been responding to that, I would suggest, through a focus on on the primacy of, of the community. Um, and so the, the social politics or the communalist politics, the socialist politics, um, tends to be about the primacy of, of the community at the expense of the individual. And what I would say is that an ecological view of politics um, squares that circle, in a sense, by saying that everything is connected, everything is interdependent, and you can't you simply can't work for the benefit of the individual unless you're understanding the individual as fundamentally interdependent and connected with every other individual. And you can't work for the benefit of the community unless you're appreciating that the community is made up of a whole lot of individuals, interdependent, <laughs> interconnected <laughs> that individuals. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah. And that's an ecological view of the world. Right. If you think about, if you think about ecologies, ecologies are made up of interdependent um, creatures and animals and interdependent species that um, that coexist and in this in this kind of very um, disconnected Cartesian dualist view of the world that Darwin's theory forms part of you you see this idea of evolution being about competition um, and mm-hmm. you know that nature is is red in tooth and claw, and the, and that the the origin of the species is about domination, and and successful species are those that win. What we know now through um, much um, greater analysis of of that process, and Darwin did talk about this a little, although he was still very much of the opinion that domination is key. What we know now is that evolution is a process that is equally importantly about cooperation as it is about competition. Mm. It is, of course, a process of competition that goes on and kind of niche building within ecosystems and things like that. But evolution is fundamentally also driven by cooperation. Yes, well, we've um, had some fantastic um, um, documentaries on TV, you know, that I've seen about trees and the incredible um, connectivity that they've got under the ground through all sorts of spores and roots and systems and and how interconnected other creatures are and insects etc so that's fascinating Mm. but how do we bring that back to changing our political circumstances and Mm. what do you think about 2020 like this year has been extraordinary um so you know we've had the bushfires which i think you know the whole world was watching australia on fire it seemed like the whole of australia was on fire i think the size of two tasmanias someone told me the other day that were burned to a crisp um and then you've got um covid which has shocked us into some kind of social um you know so there's a, a an, an environmental shock a social shock um and the next one i'm hoping is an economic one but how do you see this year will it Will it teach us some lessons? What about your ideas about participatory democracy mm. to grasp the opportunities here? Yeah. Um, look, obviously 2020 is a historical turning point. Where we turn on the basis of it is still deeply contested, I would say, um, and it's going to be contested for quite some time to come, probably for quite a number of years. What I would say is that I think 
I think what 2020 has thrown at us gives us the chance to really embrace this story of interconnection and interdependence like never before. Yes. Um, <laughs> you know, on all levels. You know, the the bushfires was such an obvious one for me and I had so many conversations with people, um, you know, particularly living in a place like Canberra where our city was choking in smoke for two months on end. We had little windows uh, where during the day sometimes there'd be a bit of clear air, but then the wind would change direction and the city would just be choking in literally the worst quality air in the world, mm. hundred times worse than what, what is considered by the WHO to be safe levels of particulate matter. But what was fascinating is that kind of in in that smoke, you could smell the trees. You could smell the eucalyptus oil in the smoke, which is a beautiful smell. It is actually, <laughs> um, and you could tell. So it wasn't. It wasn't just bad air quality. It was. It was this constant reminder that we were literally breathing in the the ghosts of gum trees wow. and the ghosts of koalas and cockatoos and the billion animals who were killed in that horrific conflagration over that time. The idea that you could have lived through that and not really deeply understand the fundamental interdependence of all things and the fact that we are part of the natural world, we're connected to the natural world, we are completely um, reliant on the health of the natural world. The idea that the idea that we could separate ourselves from the natural world and live without it is as ridiculous as the idea that we could separate ourselves from our own lungs and live without them. Yeah. So yeah. I think there were a hell of a lot of people who kind of lived through that and and light bulbs went off in their mind, not just about the reality of climate change and the seriousness of, and urgency of climate change, but about that fundamental point of interdependence. And And through that process as well, we had a a government, a federal government that was completely missing in action. And so communities started stepping up and doing stuff. People themselves started doing things, looking after each other, opening their homes to people who'd lost their homes, cooking and taking food around to people who were um, who might have lost their homes or, or the fire, the fireys who were, who were fighting on the, mm. on the front lines. Mm. People getting together to knit little woolen booties and socks for koalas with burnt paws. And, you mm. know, people were just coming together like never before and then within weeks we had the pandemic mm. and again this is something which just it demonstrates so incredibly clearly the fundamental interdependence of all of us and the fundamental interconnection of all of us because your personal health is completely reliant on the personal health of those around you and the behavior of those around you and i don't think you can go through what we've been going through this year and not totally challenge this political common sense that's been with us for so long that individualism is the centre of politics. Mm. You can't. But at the same time, what's happening is that you've got those in power 
grabbing hold of the reins of power more firmly than ever before. And you see that really obviously in some of the more authoritarian stuff that's going on mm. around the world, but also very much here in Australia. You mentioned before the the the, the um, government attacks on journalists um, here in Canberra at the moment. We've got um, Bernard Caleri, a, a, a senior lawyer, on trial for helping a whistleblower who was blowing the whistle on the fact that the Australian government was spying on the East Timorese government for the benefit of Woodside Petroleum so that they could get a leg up in their negotiations on where our, our borders should be to get access to the Timor Sea gas. And, you know, a, you know, here's a government working for the benefit of a fossil fuel corporation and who gets in trouble? The whistleblowers and the lawyer of the whistleblowers. Well, it's kind of, it's, it's really interesting that because they're, they're hiding that, uh, you know, it's not even a public trial that they're going to have. Yeah. But yeah. The, the point is that they've been caught out as being, um, it's probably what they've been doing for a long, long time mm. and directly helping fossil fuel companies do what right. they want in this country. Yeah. And, and we and, see and, that. Malcolm Turnbull, sorry, Malcolm Turnbull's book that he put out, I haven't read it, mm. 660 pages, but someone pointed out he wrote about everything, all his colleagues, all the different influences, a very smart man, very intelligent, you know, knows about it, did mm. not once mention the coal lobby. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? And to think of it's the impact it's had on him. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah, and we see that in the COVID the COVID response, the, the the group of people that Scott Morrison mm. brought together to form this this COVID commission, it's all fossil fuel industry. Mm. It's entirely mm. fossil fuel industry. And so what do you get? You get this um you get this idea of this gas-led recovery. And the idea that we could have a recovery from one crisis which makes the next crisis worse, I think is increasingly obvious to people what's going on here. Um, but this is why I think that why I say this is an incredibly contested space is we've got, you know, we've got um, the population at large waking up and realising what's going on and understanding interconnection and you've got those in power grabbing hold of that power ever more firmly and part of the way they're doing that, as you say, is through contesting the nature of reality and just confusing people. Well, it is, but, but there's something else going on too, and that's the, the, the people themselves, like you're saying, they're waking up and you've yeah. got this incredible shift away from mm -hmm. fossil fuels. Um, you know, when the energy roadmap came out and they said gas was central to it, we went around asking people in the built environment, what do you think about that? They said, oh, no one's interested. We're not doing it. <laughs> We're all moving away from gas. You know, AGL has actually come out and tied its executives' yeah. bonuses to um, climate action. I have heard... Uh, by the way, not check this, but heard that they're not putting in um, gas connections into new homes. AGL is not because it's obviously a wasted investment. They can see people won't be using them in the future. So why would you invest in, you know, 10 or 20 mm. years of gas supply when you're not going to get it? So this is, you know, there's the politics mm. moving in one direction and you've got this waking up of the people in another direction. Mm. So you've got this people power emerging, which maybe right. comes back to kind of reinforce what you're working on with this participatory democracy and this power of the people at local levels. Absolutely. The big, the big challenge in that space. So yeah, I'm a, I'm a firm believer that getting people kind of together to talk about these ideas and, and just to talk about kind of placemaking and what to do, like, you know, getting democracy out of the idea that it's just something that we do every few years to come and vote and into the idea that it's actually about how we come together to, to, to determine our collective future. It can be, 
you know, democracy can be folks on a street coming together to to um, do a little community garden or um, or you know a little transport cooperative, you know, walking school buses or or you know the mutual aid stuff that sprung up in the face of the pandemic where people are you know, letterboxing their neighbours and saying, hey, do you want me to go and collect your shopping for you or, or your prescriptions or whatever? That's democracy. That's that's co-creation of a common future. Um, and I think that's where the really exciting space lies. The huge challenge is the capacity to do that well at a time of pandemic. And that's a really big, um, really big challenge, I think, um, you know, these kinds of participatory democratic processes can work reasonably well with things like mutual aid, but a lot of them depend on getting people together into, into a common shared space. Mm. Um, and we've got limited capacity to do that while we're still fighting a pandemic. Yes, for now, but hopefully we do come out of that or we learn some ways of dealing with it. Um, But I've spoken to a few people of saying that, um, you know, they get their social bus from going to work or they used to and now they're getting a social bus from being in their neighbourhoods and getting to know their neighbours. And I think how much more long-lasting is that and how much more valuable is it? If you need your kids picked up from school, um, your neighbour's going to be far more useful than your colleague (laughs) in an office. So I'm excited about the possibilities. I agree with you the contrary um, power, you know, or exertion of power to control and stop these yeah. movements will be even stronger. Yeah. And I think there'll be, an, you know, um, extremes in both sides. But, um, yeah, but, you know, let's um, imagine that we are coming out of COVID and what happens now? Um I've been reading this morning about modern monetary theory mm. and Jessica Irvine was explaining exactly what it is and I think I had a, an idea, but you can see that um, the government has been forced into doing things that are actually quite radical for, for yeah. a conservative government and we may need to keep supplementing um, wages. You're talking about a universal um, income, I think, in, mm. your, in your theories. Mm. Are we getting that by default now? <laughs> Will the government be forced into keeping that, whether it likes it or not? And have we actually started to change radically the economic system, which, you know, I don't know whether economics is part of the three-legged stool or whether it should be subservient. I'm not quite sure about that one. Right. Uh, but tell me about that and what you think the possibilities might be. So, look, I think there's been tremendous change in that space, um, although nowhere near far enough. Um, the the key the key shift I think that um, the government made um, as the economic impact of of the COVID shutdown um, arrived was not what a lot of people have talk, been talking about, which has been the doubling of the rate. Although that's been hugely hugely important and beneficial, the big shift was the removing the conditionality of of income support, Um, that um, to get income support um, in the current system, and and they're certainly saying they're going to be returning to that, um, snapping back to that, you just, you have to leap through so many hoops in order to qualify um, that it makes it much, much harder to live, actually, when on income support, which makes it that much harder to get a job. This is the ridiculous Mm. Part of the part of the equation. There's been tremendous analysis of this that if you're required to just jump through hoops all the time and you're being, you, you know, you, you've got this surveillance system on top of you and, and this incredibly punitive system on top of you, it squashes people and it and it really 
it doesn't help anything. It doesn't help people survive. It certainly doesn't help people into the workforce. Um, and the lifting of those conditionalities, which had to be done because people couldn't be fulfilling them. You can't, you couldn't require under lockdown for people to be constantly going and, and having meetings with people and, and applying for jobs and all of these kinds of things. The lifting of those conditionalities is what brings it closer to the idea of a universal basic income. And a universal basic income is, is an idea where everybody in our society simply gets a flat rate of pay from the government, a regular cash payment, which is targeted at, at, at supporting the basics to survive. So that you have this really solid floor underneath you where in the same way that we say with public health, everybody should get access to the basics of public health. With education, every single person in our society get, deserves the basics of education. We should say the same thing with poverty. We should. We just simply don't allow poverty and everybody gets the basics that they need to survive. You deal with that, um, with the pressures on, on the economy and, and inflation and, 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 uh, and everything by taxing the rich so that they pay for it. So, so everybody would get the payment, but... but more than half people of the people would be paying back more than they would earn um, through that. So it balances out. But that's the basic idea of, of, a, of a universal and unconditional basic income, that everybody in our society deserves the basics that they need to survive. Um, and, yeah, we've made a few steps towards that. But the rhetoric of the government in the last little while has been very clear that they want to reverse that as soon as possible, this idea um, which has absolutely no basis in observed reality, by the way, that Scott Morrison came out with the other day, that people are refusing to go back to work because the, because income support is so good at the moment. Um, firstly, it's an absolute nonsense. There simply aren't the jobs there right. for people to be going to. Yes. But secondly, it really is it's it, it's in incredibly clearly showing the kind of view of the world that they have, that they want to snap back to this idea that, that people's only worth in society is what they can sell their labour for. And if you're not doing that, if you're not in the market and selling your labour, then you're not a worthy human being. Well, I think um, the RBA is encouraging the government to, to keep up its um, support for the economy because if it does um, take away JobKeeper or JobSeeker, um, you know, uh, job seeker they might feel more mean about but you know the things could fall even further and I think people are now starting to understand that if people you know the ones that are going to spend the money and keep the economy going are those on the lowest income oh. because they will spend everything they get whereas really? giving tax cuts to the rich means that they shove them away shove the money away somewhere um but but you know, the monetary theory, which seems to be getting more airplay lately, says that everyone should have the rights to um, jobs. So that what do you think about that? If you, you know, say um, we will provide a job for you, we will pay you this basic wage because there's lots of work to be done, there's environmental remediation, there's mm. help for people who are aged or ill, um, mm. need support. What do you think about that, about tying that universal income to, to work? So I see them as separate questions, actually. Um, and it's interesting that modern monetary theory, a lot of a lot of the proponents of modern monetary theory see it as fundamentally connected to, to jobs, where, in fact, the theory doesn't necessitate that at all. The theory can back a universal basic True. income just as, as strongly. The, the simple... Um, the simple, 
you know, observation of modern monetary theory is that sovereign governments don't need to tax people in order to spend money because they can create mm. money and they do create money all the time. The tax system is about controlling inflation. Yes, it's um, interesting, <laughs> isn't it? It's so, very exciting. <laughs> It's a great it's a great observation, a really clear observation, and it um and it does mean that you know that we can think differently about um about the way governments run their economies, which I think is really valuable. I'm confused, frankly, as to why so many people attach that to the idea of a job guarantee as opposed to a universal basic income, because to me the two operate in parallel. Um I I'm a, a big believer in the the principle of disentangling paid labour from the right to survive. Um, and this is why I don't like the idea of a job guarantee as the be-all and end-all because a job guarantee still says that if you're not working for somebody else, if you're not working a paid job, then you don't count mm. and we don't care about you. It's very fanatical, isn't it? It's very ideological. It is. And everyone should be, you know, um, engaged in lots of work, otherwise they'll get up to mischief. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, which is a very clear articulation of the Protestant work ethic, that if you're not busy, then then there's this little devil on your shoulder <laughs> who's going to be whispering, you know, quite literally that was kind of how, what people were saying and it's this incredibly close connection between the development of the Protestant work ethic and the development of capitalist industrialism. Yes. Um, so I, yeah, I've, you know, if you talk to a lot of people who are involved in in community activities, which are incredibly valuable, whether it's, you know, whether it's kind of helping out in community gardens and um, and organising yeah. those kinds of things, whether it's school PNCs, whether it's parenting, obviously, or looking after elderly parents at the other end of, of, of you know, the life journey, um, people don't want to be paid for that. Right, people so it's that. work all the same, but it's not structured it's and it doesn't, it's not tied to, yeah, that's very interesting. It's incredibly valuable yeah. work, yeah. but it's not paid labour. So I'm a really big believer in in disconnecting those things and saying our job as society is to make sure that everybody has what they need to survive mm. and we tr we should trust each other to participate and contribute. And there's a huge number of different ways in which people participate and contribute. Um, I also believe that we should be doing a huge amount of, of um, industrial policy to create jobs. <laughs> in well, things that's like the next question. And, mm. and environmental remediation mm. and all of those things that you're saying. Absolutely. Mm. Mm. I think that there's a, there's a necessity for that and there will be huge numbers of people who will be desperate for that kind of work and we should be doing that. I would like to separate those two things and say we need a UBI because it's the right thing to do, but we also need a job creation program um, and so keep them separate. Right. And and so that's got something to do with um, the dignity of people, I think, from what you're saying, that people choose to do, you know, work in the community, mm -hmm. but because it's voluntary, it allows them that um, a more creative attitude. But the other thing is that jobs, you know, as mechanisation and computers and um, IT gets more sophisticated, we the fear is we will have far less, fewer jobs and the people do like to feel um, part of society and to, to engage. And do you uh, do you think in renewables and what we've got, the challenges ahead of us on climate is enough to pick up the jobs that we will lose from from technology? 
I think there are if we if we share them better. And it's interesting that the 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 automation um, you know revolution is is seen as a as a threat as a fear. Um, if you go back a hundred years, um, John Maynard Keynes was was saying a hundred years ago that by now, by the by the by the twenty twenties or twenty thirty, um, automation would have made it possible for everybody to be working fifteen hour weeks. Yes, and we'd have much <laughs> more leisure time in our lives. And you know, thinking about the comment that you made earlier in terms of in terms of where people are finding their connections and their meaning in in life in their communities instead of in the workplace, um, I think that. Actually, we we should be really aiming towards a situation where we're less controlled by by our work lives, um, and and those who control the the levers of our work should have less control over our lives, um, and we can we can work less and participate more, which gives us more time to to participate in democracy as well, of course. And this is one of the things that links us back to that that point is that our system is constructed to keep us so damn busy. That yes. we just put up and shut up and deal with, you know, it's, it, it's so often when I'm having conversations with people, if I'm door knocking, for instance, um, or out on a stall and chatting to people about politics, people will say, well, I care a lot about this, but I simply don't have time in my life to do anything about it. Um, We've so, lost our time, haven't we? Yeah. I feel like it's being stolen from us on a daily yeah. basis um, and things getting faster and faster. And just even going through your emails every day, yeah. someone, yeah. you know, read a beautiful article about that saying, you know, that is actually stealing my time. Yeah. That is a and value. So this, yeah, this, this, you know, goes to to my fundamental um Political theory, you know, as you were saying, this this idea of an ecological politics that everything is connected, fundamentally everything is connected, and the idea that we can disconnect climate change from um, from our system of work, from our economic system, from our political system, they're all connected, and we and we need to provide connected solutions to mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. And a UBI can do all sorts of things. It's only one part of the puzzle. It's not a silver bullet, but it's one part of the puzzle that can help people you know, implement climate solutions in their local communities, help people get more involved in democracy, which will lead to better democratic outcomes and more likely stronger climate action. It'll shift our the economic basis of, um, of our systems and enable people to get out of of not just fossil fuel sectors and find their way into other work, but but reduce the amount that they commute, for instance, which will reduce pollution. And all of these things are are really closely interconnected. Yeah. So these are all good positive things. But our mm. future is looking like the people who want to steal our time and control our thoughts are getting more and more powerful. And they have massive technology and surveillance um, opportunities over us, as perceived in you know the Chinese. Uh, social, what do they call it, a social point system where if you misbehave, go to a demonstration, they know who you are, you will not be allowed to have a mortgage, you won't be allowed to travel, et cetera, et cetera. So in terms of where we could be going and all these positive trends and where the power is to stop us, what do you fear the most and how can we overcome that? Mm. Um, I fear the centralisation of power. Um, which is one of the reasons I am slightly sceptical of of democratic socialism, which likes to see the idea of nationalisation of everything and, and centralising things. Mm. Um, the more centralised power is, the more disconnected it becomes from the citizens, the more, um, the more problematic it can become. 
Um, and that's why you see governments like the Chinese government obviously being um, incredibly problematic. But but even so, as I was saying, you know, th this is the difference between the wonderful positive things that you can see in in governments like the City of Sydney or or, or the ACT's government versus the federal government in Australia. Um, so I think. Um, yeah, to me, the hope is in is in re, is in reinvigorating local democracy in all sorts of ways. Um, I guess I also kind of I draw together the fear and the hope in in a sense in in possibly a somewhat cynical way, is that you know we we talk now and you mentioned you know the idea of coming through the coronavirus pandemic and and coming out the other side. If we know one thing about about the years ahead, it's that this is just going to be the first in a series of crises that's coming and we've rolled in Canberra from the bushfires into the worst hailstorm on record, into the coronavirus, into the economic crash. Um, things are changing and there's going to be there's going to be crisis after crisis after crisis rolling through, particularly as the climate judders and shakes its way out of this balance into whatever comes next and as our as our constant attacks on biodiversity trigger even more problems um we are headed for some form of collapse what form that collapse takes i think is our choice but the idea that we could somehow avoid some level of economic, political and civilizational collapse in the decades ahead, I think is a pipe dream. Things are changing dramatically. But I take hope from the idea that as those systems collapse, what's going to collapse first and most strongly is some of those systems of centralised power. Because the centre cannot hold, as William Butler Yeats said 100 years ago, the centre cannot hold when things get difficult. Um, we will localise. We will naturally relocalise. And, I, you know, I see that so clearly in the way that the federal government just vacated the field during the bushfires and local communities started just cropping up and doing stuff and, and helping survive. So, yeah, I guess th this is... I've been conceptualising... I guess recently my my kind of my democratic theories around the idea that our current democratic systems are incapable of confronting the challenges that we face. Mm. They're designed in such a way that they've created this system and you can't you usually can't get yourself out of a difficult problem that a system created unless you change that system. So our current democratic systems aren't capable of facing up to this of, of, of what we've created, but they're also really fundamentally ill-suited to enabling us to survive them. It's really interesting because that kind of ties right into the theories that have come out of um, resilience and looking at uh, right. the built environment, right. which is our specialty. Um, and mm. you'd think it would be about building higher dam walls or, you know, or better sewage systems that don't get flooded or buildings that are a bit higher. But the people who are investigating this are saying, no, the resilience will come from community cooperation and strength. And it ties right in with what you're saying. 
Absolutely. And, the, and these are very ecological ideas. Um, you know, looking at the pattern of ecologies consistently at small levels and at, and at, and at large levels, you know, kind of little, little ecological communities all the way through to kind of continent-wide ecosystems. E- ecosystems go through this process of, of growth and increasing complexity, and then you tend to see part of an ecosystem becoming overly dominant. Um, and yeah, you know, and you will often find yourself in, in this in this nice equilibrium for a lengthy period of time until something throws it out of that equilibrium, yep. and you get a moment of collapse. Yeah, and the moment of collapse automatically triggers a moment of creativity, <laughs> and that is that is what happens because when something collapses, something else grows to fill oh, the gap. That is fantastic. Um, and I think. You know, that's the moment of creativity, but it's the moment of challenge uh, as well. And it, it really, it maps perfectly onto Antonio Gramsci's political theory of change, where he talks about, um, his most famous quote is where he says that the old world is dying and the new is struggling to be born and here be monsters. <laughs> um, so, you know, th- this is a moment where our democratic systems as they've currently been constructed are collapsing we can see them and feel them collapsing around our ears. And we, we have the opportunity to build beautiful, new, much more democratic systems, in fact. But the challenge is that the, that the autocrats, the fascists, are, are on the march as well and they want to do something different. So there's a real risk at this moment that autocrats will kind of take control as they are trying to do, but there's an incredible opportunity a beautiful opportunity for us to be building this ecological democratic alternative from the grassroots up. That's fantastic, Tim. Thank you very much. That's a great note to to finish on. But can I just ask one last bit of advice? What can people as an individual do? You know, what's something they can go out there? I know you've mentioned um, um, cooperatives as well as something you're fond of. Is there some kind of thing that, you know, a bit of advice you can give our listeners? The advice I always give is find your space. Find your little niche, find what you're good at, find what you're passionate about and challenge yourself as you're doing that to ask the question, is this going to help shift the systems to be more participatory and more democratic and more ecologically sensitive? Um, and if your answer to that is yes, go and do it, whatever the hell it is, you know, and, and imagine that in the broadest possible terms. If it's, if it's cooking for your neighbours, if it's gardening, if it's, if it's um, you know, kind of last mile transport stuff, if it's, if it's joining a cooperative or setting up a new cooperative, um, if it's, you know, actual kind of capital D democratic stuff like citizens' assemblies in your neighbourhood or, you know, or, or design as many of your your um, listeners will be involved in. Just challenge yourself to question what what impact is this having? Is it going to be a positive one? Um, is it going to shift the balance of power towards more ecologically sensitive ways of doing things? And if your answer is yes, whatever you're doing is the right thing. That's fantastic. Many, many thanks, Tim. That was a fantastic um, uh, sharing of conversation with me. Thank you. Always a pleasure, Tina. Thanks Thank for you. Me. Bye. Bye.